This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. And my aim, as always, is education. Hello, class. How's everybody today? Tonight, we're starting on a, I don't know how many parts this episode is going to be, because there is a lot of information that I found on it with a few audio clips. So as far as the learning objectives go, I don't think it's a spoiler alert if I tell you that it's about a husband who kills his wife. So mainly, we're going to try and figure out exactly why he did that, what his motives were, and explore if there's any possible issues with him psychologically. Since most of this story takes place in Pittsburgh, I'll describe this awesome city for you. Pittsburgh is also known as the Berg or Steel City. It's in the southwestern corner of Pennsylvania at the junction of the Ohio, Monongahela, and Allegheny Rivers. The largest employer in Pennsylvania is UPMC, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center which is going to play a big role in tonight's case. As you might think, UPMC was originally associated with the University of Pittsburgh, otherwise known as Pitt, but has since grown to 340 hospitals all over Pennsylvania and Maryland, outpatient clinics, more than 60 cancer centers, more than 45 pediatric locations, and more than 70 imaging locations. UPMC has approximately 92,000 employees, which is, like, mind-blowing. The main hospitals are clustered around Pitt in the Oakland section of Pittsburgh, in what we call Hospital Row. And it's a, uh, trying to describe it, I do have one picture in my Instagram it's like Pitt is down there, and it's a big college, so it has all its buildings. And Pitt's buildings and the UPMC buildings are kind of all together. And they're all like uh, UPMC Presbyterian, known as Presby, which is going to play a main part in this story, is down there, along with Children's, Western Psych, um, Montefiore, they're all kind of clumped together. But we're not starting in, in Pittsburgh. We're starting off in Baltimore, Maryland, in the neighboring state of Maryland. Bill and Lois Klein got together when she asked him for a ride home from a duck pin bowling league. I did look up what duck pin means because I have no idea. Apparently, it's similar to regular bowling, but with smaller balls, and it's harder to get a strike, and I still basically have no idea what it means, but it doesn't matter. They got married on February 22, 1964. Lois worked for the IRS, and Bill was an electrician, and their only child, Autumn, was born seven years later, on November 30, 1971. The first few years of Autumn's life, they lived in a row house in Baltimore, 
next to Lois's sister, Carolyn. And Carolyn had four kids, including Sharon, who at 17 months older than Autumn would be Autumn's best friend. And these two were like inseparable. They even had their own language. Sharon had her own bed in Autumn's bedroom, and she often spent weekends there. She remembers dancing with Autumn and Uncle Bill in their kitchen while 50s music played on the radio. They also played something called Best Mall, which was a like a pretend place that had a medical clinic where they treated their stuffed animals. The family did fun things like roller skating and often went to Ocean City, Maryland. Autumn was described as not shy, but not outgoing, like somewhere in the middle. And everything I've read about her from being a kid to being an adult, she was known for being very kind, caring, and giving. She was a good kid who did well in school, and her parents put her in a private school because they were afraid that she would get involved with illegal drugs, which is very ironic considering what happens later. In high school, Autumn was in the drama club and yearbook staff. She loved acting and being on stage. In seventh grade, her teacher's husband took her to work with him at Johns Hopkins University one summer. So from an early age, she showed an interest in science. Her parents were loving and caring, but also demanding, and Autumn would later claim to a friend in college that her mother pressured her and was kind of hard on her. She got close to her AP biology teacher, Bette Kenzie, and she even made her a cross-stitch clock before she graduated. That's just the kind of kind and generous person Autumn was. In high school, she was dating a dude named Tim, who was a year older, and he went to Amherst, which was a small Presbyterian liberal arts school in kind of like the middle of Massachusetts. So she decided to go to Amherst also, partly because of Tim, but she was attracted by the history of Amherst. It was founded in 1821 and such famous writers as Emily Dickinson and Robert Frost were associated with it. She started college at Amherst in the fall of 1989, and she had a double major in neuroscience and women's studies. During her first year there, she met a Greek dude and even went to visit him in Cyprus, but her friends thought that he was too controlling. She was one of a group of eight friends who lived in the same dorm, and they called themselves first years. They didn't like the term freshman because they thought it was sexist, and Autumn had always been a feminist. Her Aunt Carolyn, Sharon's mom, was the president of the League of Women Voters in Baltimore during the 60s and a big feminist activist, and this inspired Autumn to be a feminist and get involved in activism also. She was involved in campus activities like Take Back the Night, which is mainly like a protest against violence against women, which in retrospect is so gut-wrenching. And this Take Back the Night thing, I have heard of it, 
but I, I've never like really participated or anything in it. The first one was actually in England in 1877. As a sophomore, Autumn became a residential counselor at Pratt Hall. So we had those thing, those things. Yeah, those people where I went to college, they were called RAs, resident assistants, I think. That's what that stood for. And I think they were all maybe like seniors or, or grad students. And for Autumn to be one of those as a sophomore, she had to have been extremely mature. And from everything that I've learned about her, she was. She started dating a dude named Brian who was in a band. And her and her friends would go see this band play at the lounge on campus. Some of the classes she took were cell structure, organic chemistry, women and writing in Russia, and construction of gender. So she was focusing on science, but she also had kind of a wide range of interests. Autumn, like me in college, was not really like the rest of her classmates. She came from a working class family. So in order to, I guess, eat, she had to have a work-study job. She worked in the cafeteria, and she also baked for the student center cafe. Her friends said that her work habits were actually intimidating, and she really pushed herself. They also worried about her being anorexic, and when you see pictures of her, you'll understand why. She would supposedly eat rice cakes for a meal, and this bothered her friends so much that they called her parents, and her parents said, look, if you don't start eating, you are going to have to come home from college. So apparently, Autumn started eating. She met one of her best friends, Karen Kiang, when they were lab partners together, and Karen blew up their experiment. And you'll see Karen mentioned throughout the rest of the story, as I said, she would become a lifelong friend of Autumn. She joined the neuroscience program, which was actually one of the first of its kind. There were only about 12 students in this program each year, and they studied biology, physics, psychology, and math. Autumn never got a grade below a B. She entered a program in western Massachusetts. It was called the Five Colleges, and it was a group of five colleges, and what they did was they, like, exchanged students. A student at one college could take classes at another college. So Autumn did her senior thesis under, and I'm sorry, I've practiced this name. It's a Dutch name, Geert de Vries. Assistant Professor of Psychology at the University of Massachusetts. She studied rat brains. She would sane a section of a rat brain and study it under a microscope. And the purpose of this was to time the birth of cells. And that sounds incredibly tedious to me. Her thesis was called Development of a Sex Difference in the Rat Brain. On her 21st birthday, her parents drove six hours to surprise her with balloons and take her out to dinner. Autumn graduated from Amherst in 1993. She wanted to go to medical school, and she applied to Duke, the University of Rochester, and Boston University. Her parents weren't happy about Boston because they thought the city was unsafe. And of course, that's where she went. She entered the MD-PhD program in 1993, 
And I didn't know this. Apparently, an MD-PhD program is affectionately known as MUDFUD. This program was seven years long, and it consisted of two years of medical school, followed by three years of PhD research, then two more years of medical school. And she was said to choose the hardest classes and rotations. She took her radiology rotation in Paris, and her mom came to stay for a week with her, which they had a great time shopping and touring the city, going to museums and parks. Her friend Karen, who was now a medical student at Yale, came monthly to visit Autumn, and they would study, eat Cheerios, and shop at something called Trader Joe's, which apparently is a store that sells unique or unusual food. In 1995, as part of her doctoral program, she started working in the lab at Bedford Veterans Administration Medical Center, and the supervisor there was a guy named Neil Kowal. So when she comes to work there, Neil asks an older scientist, Bob Ferrante, if he wanted to work with Autumn, and he said, I'll take her. Autumn would later say, that she fell in love with Bob, who was 23 years older than her at first sight. Her friend Karen said, quote, she was attracted to him for a long time. It didn't happen smash bang, end quote. And Autumn told all her friends that she liked this older dude that she worked in the lab with. And they were all a little put off by the age difference because he was old enough to be your dad and they're all like, um, are you sure? He's not only old, he's your, like, supervisor there. And Autumn said, yes, he's so attractive and so smart. And she also admired the fact that he was divorced and raised two kids on his own. So let's talk about Robert Bob Ferrante. Bob was born on October 21st, 1948, in Quincy, which is a working-class city south of Boston. His dad, James, was a pastry chef, yum, and his mom, Jessica, was a housewife. But before that, she was a violinist in an orchestra, and she later worked as a decorator and seamstress. I don't like the word seamstress. It seems like sexist. So how about Taylor? She sewed. Whatever, she sewed. He had two older siblings, Diane and James. The family stressed education, culture, sports, and hard work. I can't picture him doing this, but Bob played the guitar and was in a few bands as a teenager. He also took art lessons at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. He went to a private high school, Chauncey Hall, which was actually a boarding school. He graduated from there in 1966. He then went to the University of Bridgeport in Connecticut, also a private college, graduated from there in 1970, and got his master's in neuroscience in 1971. In August of 1971, he married Diana McLaughlin. He was 22, she was 23, and he met her on a group outing to the beach. She taught elementary school while he pursued advanced degrees. Bob was always interested in science. His mentor steered him towards neuroscience, which was exploding in the 1970s. And neuroscience basically 
examines the structure and function of the brain and nervous system. After grad school, he worked as a research assistant, then a senior research assistant, then as a research supervisor. His focus was neuropathology, which is the study of diseases of the nervous system. He worked at Eunice Kennedy Shriver Center for Mental Retardation in Waltham, which was 11 miles from Boston, and eventually ended up at Massachusetts General Hospital where he spent several years as a clinical lab supervisor. He did research on Huntington's disease, which is a rare progressive breakdown of nerve cells in the brain and eventually results in movement, cognitive, and psychological disorders. And he kind of focused on Huntington's throughout his life. And from what I read of it, it sounds like a really horrible disease to have. In 1975, they bought a big white colonial house in Canton, which was 20 miles from Boston, and they had two kids, Kimberly in 1980 and Michael in 1983. In the early years, the family was close and loving. They were into sports, they rode horses, they picked wild blueberries and made pies out of them. Eventually, Bob started to apply to mud flood programs. Around 1987, trouble started in their marriage, and supposedly Diana started to manifest symptoms of bipolar disorder, which ran in her family. So they went to counseling, and supposedly it didn't solve anything. Bipolar disorder, the thing about that is it's supposedly genetic, and from what I understand, it can lay dormant in you. Or as with me, and apparently with Diana here also, when you get older, it just all of a sudden decides to rear its ugly head. They filed for divorce in August of 1988, citing a, quote, irretrievable breakdown of marriage, along with different lifestyles, a breakdown in communication leading to a loss of affection. And that sounds like a kind of generic description of all divorces, I guess. They'd been married for 17 years. Bob blamed the breakup on Diana's illness, which I want to say is kind of rude because isn't it it in your wedding vows for rich or poor and sickness and in health? Um, Yeah, bipolar disorder is a mental illness. So I think that's kind of covered in there, like a, a spouse should be supportive. But I've never been married. What do I know? Diana later said, pay attention to this. I think this is significant. Quote, he wanted me barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen. End quote. So sounds like a little bit of a male chauvinist oink. And she said he refused to let her have Tupperware parties because he didn't want strangers in the house. You know how wild those Tupperware parties can get. And she said he had a temper. This part here is crazy. Part of their divorce agreement was a three-page itemized list of 132 items that Diana would take with her. And some of these things that were on this list, and I just had to share these with you because I found this funny and ridiculous, included two Christmas cacti, four Kleenex holders, six green placemats, one magazine holder, and a hot dog grate. I don't even know what that is, but I can picture them sitting there sorting everything out. Well, here, you get 
six green placemats and I'll take four orange placemats. Like, who does this? They share the custody of the, the kids at first, but for some, whatever reason, Diana kind of quit bothering with them and Bob was left to raise them on his own. But his dad, who the kids called Papa, moved in to help with the kids. He took Kimberly to horse riding lessons and coached Michael's sports. Michael apparently played every sport there was. Soccer, baseball, football, basketball. Bob worked at the Bedford VA studying Huntington's and Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is a progressive disease which destroys memory and other mental functions. Another thing he studied was ALS, which is short for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, and that's a neurodegenerative disease in which your muscles gradually weaken until the point where you can't swallow, talk, or breathe. It sounds like a really shitty way to die. He published dozens of papers and was considered an expert in the field of neurological disorders. In 1993, he enrolled in Boston University School of Medicine in neuropsychology, which is the study of the biological basis of behavior in humans and animals. And he would eventually get his PhD in behavioral neuroscience. His dissertation, which he finished in 1996, was called Mitochondrial Energy Impairment as a Model for Huntington's Disease. And this here is important, so maybe jot this down on your notebook, which I'm sure you listen with a notebook and pen so that you can write down important stuff. As part of the experiment for his dissertation, he injected a neurotoxin into rats. And the name of this was 3-nitro-propionic acid, or 3-NP for short. And supposedly this neurotoxin closely mimicked the brain damage associated with Huntington's disease. So just remember that chemical 3NP. It's like a toxin. It's natural. It comes from plants. It's neurotoxin, which means it is like a nerve poison and also a mycotoxin, which means that it's produced by fungi. He served as the principal project leader for research on Huntington's disease and gene mutation and creatine therapy. Supposedly, in experiments, creatine causes symptoms similar to Huntington's. What he was trying to do, his aim in all this, was to develop drugs to treat neurodegenerative diseases like Huntington's. So if you're still writing stuff down, write this down. Creatine, which you may have heard of, is an amino acid. It's mostly used to increase muscle mass. If you read like, um, what do you call that, Muscle and Fitness or Bodybuilder magazines, you'll see all kinds of ads for it. It's like a powder. It is a powder. And supposedly you take this powder and it makes you bulk up. It's actually made in your liver, pancreas, and kidney. And they found it can treat certain brain disorders in neuromuscular conditions. Studies show that creatine and IVF medium can enhance sperm passitation. So we're talking about when somebody's trying to get pregnant. And this is going to be important later on. That's why I'm bothering telling you this. You probably heard of IVF. That's when they implant an egg in the 
mother or would-be mother. Well, supposedly this IVF medium, if you put creatine in it, it enhances the chances of a viable pregnancy. And I was curious about the question of does creatine affect fertility? Because this is going to be a major issue coming up. And I, it's this is in my show notes if you want to see where I got this from. But a dietitian named Aidan Muir said, quote, I would say creatine likely does not have any negative impacts on fertility, but there is no evidence to suggest it improves fertility either, end quote. Notice how I emphasize that. So during this time, Bob met Autumn, and they were friends at first. They didn't start dating for a while. She befriended his kids. She took Kimberly on a tour of Amherst College when Kimberly was looking at colleges. And interestingly, Kimberly decided to major in neuroscience. They didn't start dating till around 1998 when Autumn wrote her dissertation. And hers was called Beta Amyloid Injections Cause Cortical Injury and Oxidative Damage in the Mouse cerebral cortex. Supposedly, their age was not a problem. Autumn was mature for her age, which to me, it seemed like she always was. And Bob was supposedly young for his age. They did a lot of fun stuff together. They hiked, biked, went to France, took dance lessons, cooked together. They got engaged and Autumn moved in with him and the kids and Papa, and she helped with Papa's medical care. They got married on May 18th of 2001 in a small ceremony in the Old North Church in Boston. And that is really cool. The Old North Church, you may have heard of it. It's kind of a big deal in American history. It was founded in 1722. It was the first stop on Paul Revere's ride in 1775. You know that poem? The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, that's the church that's mentioned in that poem. I do have their wedding picture on my Instagram, you can see. The flowers she has are sweet peas, and she picked sweet peas because that was his nickname for her. Her cousin Sharon was the maid of honor, and Bob's son Michael, who was now 18, was his best man. They had a reception at a local Italian restaurant. Then they got in a limo and drove 90 miles away to Kennebunkport, Maine, where they stayed at a luxury resort called the White Barn Inn for the weekend. And this place looks really awesome. I saw some pictures of it online. A couple days after their wedding, Autumn graduated magna cum laude, which is the second highest after summa cum laude, with her MD-PhD. She then started a one-year internship at Brown University in Rhode Island, and she did a neurology residence at Partners, Harvard, Brigham, and Women's, Massachusetts General. She said she chose neurology because she wanted to make a diagnosis and solve a puzzle. And it's interesting to note that although they were both doctors, Bob focused on research and Autumn chose to physically interact with her patients. And she was said to be a very caring and kind doctor. She narrowed her focus to women's neurology and her doctors and patients loved her. Eventually, she narrowed her focus further to seizure disorders in pregnant women, which 
until I researched this, I didn't really know was such a big of a problem as it is. In spring of 2006, they went to Switzerland. Bob was giving a couple lectures and Autumn came along. So over dinner, Autumn announced that she was pregnant and they were both really excited. In January of 2007, Siona Ferrante was born. Her dad, at the time she was born, was 58. Autumn loved being a mom. Sometimes she would take Siona, who she called Cece, to work with her. And she said in an email to her friend Karen, remember Karen from college, that they were lab partners and they blew up their experiment. This is like around 2009. She said in this email, quote, Bob is always annoyed because he thinks I work too much and get home too late and don't spend enough time with the baby, end quote. Autumn had to commute up to three hours a day, which mostly consisted of sitting in traffic, and that had to really suck. When she was in the car sitting there in traffic, she would talk on the phone to different people, and she often talked to her cousin Sharon. So while she was talking to Sharon, Bob would keep calling her, and he would say, where are you? And she would say, quote, five minutes further down the road than the last time, end quote. And Sharon's like, what the fuck? Why is he doing that? And Autumn said, quote, he just wants to know where I am, end quote. This worried Sharon. She said that Bob was trying to exert power and control, which is a form of domestic abuse, but Autumn just kind of brushed it off. And I just want to say the nerve of this dude Autumn works her ass off all day, spends three hours in her car commuting, is caring for a baby, well, two babies, and he has the nerve to bitch at her and call and ask her where she is. So now she's starting to see the ugly side of Bob. When Sharon and her husband visited, they never felt comfortable with Bob. And Sharon thought that Bob always had to be in control and always had to be right you know how sometimes if you're in a, in a relationship, you're like in love or honeymoon phase or whatever, and you can't see the person's faults, but then maybe your relative or friend of yours from the outside, they can see things that you can't. And well, this was what was going on here. Sharon and a couple of um, Autumn's other friends were like, Autumn, this dude's a dickhead. By August of 2008, they wanted to have another kid or, well, I should say Autumn wanted to have another kid. Bob wasn't real thrilled about it, but he went along, which is never a good idea. They weren't having any luck trying the regular way, so they saw a fertility specialist. They tried IVF, which, as I can imagine, is very expensive. In mid-2010, they had an opportunity to move to Pittsburgh. UPMC wanted Autumn to join their neurology practice and start a women's program. And Pitt wanted Bob to move his research lab to Scaife Hall, which is home to Pitt's School of Medicine. And I have actually a, it's like a Google map of the city and I have it zoomed in. All of these buildings are connected. Scaife Hall and Presby, which is where Autumn worked, and one of the other hospitals, but you can actually move between them through tunnels. It would be more money, a shorter commute, and it looked very appealing. 
Bob could retire soon, which means Autumn would be the sole breadwinner. So in May of 2011, they paid $590,000 for a three-story brick house in the Shenley Farm section of the city at 219 Lytton Avenue. It was five bedrooms and two and a half bathrooms. It's a 15-minute walk or five-minute drive to their work, which was very convenient. And they loved Pittsburgh. They could walk everywhere. The area that they lived was close to museums, and there's lots of good museums there. There's the Carnegie Museum of Art, Carnegie Museum of Natural History that are like right there. There's parks, Carnegie Library. And they found Pittsburgh people real down-to-earth and likable, not snooty like the people in Boston. And this city was also a lot more affordable than Boston. Autumn was happy at work. She was now head of women's neurology, and she got two private foundation research grants to study seizures in pregnant women. And she eventually chose this as a specialty. So she specialized in neurology, but she went further with women's neurology, and she went even further with seizure disorders in pregnant women. So she was like a special, special specialist. While Autumn's salary tripled, Bob's went down. Pitt was happy to have him because he was a very respected researcher, and he was working on drugs to treat Huntington's. Opinions of Bob among his co-workers were mixed. Some thought he was cool and nice and a good mentor. Others found him difficult to work for and kind of arrogant. By 2012, the couple was having problems again. Autumn was working a lot, and she was frustrated that she couldn't get pregnant. The doctors encouraged her to take time off, and they said, which totally makes sense, all this stress of working all the time is probably not helping you to get pregnant. She didn't feel that Bob was emotionally supportive. They looked into adoption, but due to their big age difference, they were not considered. Autumn kept a diary. And on July 30th of 2012, she was writing in it. She was talking about being frustrated with this fertility issue. She said, quote, I am incredibly unhappy. I just feel like something is missing in my life. I think that thing missing is love, end quote. That's so sad. She has a husband and a kid, and she said that she's missing love. And this part here is crazy. Bob told her that if they had another kid, that she would be fully responsible for everything it needed. And I have written down here, WTF, who says that about having a kid? That's like saying a kid's like, I want a hamster. And the parents are like, well, okay, you can have a hamster, but you're totally responsible for taking care of it. That's like what Bob was doing. Autumn's friend Karen visited and she noticed rude behavior from Bob. He actually chewed Autumn a new asshole for putting something in the dishwasher the wrong way. And finally, Autumn told her cousin Sharon that she was planning to leave the marriage. And this was in an email. And she said, quote, I don't know what else to do. I see myself alone in a couple years. It's just gotten so bad you have no idea, end quote. Sharon's husband was a psychologist, and one time, 
Autumn told her to ask him if there was a gene for compassion. She said, because if there is, then Bob is lacking it. Note that. She started sending Bob emails, and this one she sent on February 9th of 2013. And she said, quote, I hate to say it, Bob, but through this entire mess, while in body you have done your duty, you have not been there for me. I realize now I have been alone in this entire emotional journey. You stink at picking up on almost all other emotions beside anger, end quote. Later, the police would find that five hours after getting this email, he Googled, quote, divorce Pittsburgh, PA, end quote, which is not very incriminating. We all love Google, but we're going to see that it becomes Bob's undoing. So mid-February, Autumn goes to a conference in San Francisco. And what happens here is pretty interesting. One person at the conference was her good friend and colleague, Dr. Tom McElrath. And because he's a friend, she's known him for a long time, she confided to him about her troubled marriage. So while she's at this conference, Bob texted her and he, he says, I'm coming to the conference too. And she told Tom that this was an example of his controlling behavior and that he thought there was, quote, something going on between her and Tom. Later on, the police examined his search history and found that on February 15th, this is before the conference, which he knows the conference is coming up. He knows it's in San Francisco. Bob Googled suicides Golden Gate Bridge, which, by the way, in case you didn't know, is the number one site in the world where people commit suicide. So you can just use your imagination to think about why he may have Googled that. On February 23rd, he Googled McElrath Thomas Frederick. And by far the craziest, I'm going to try not to laugh because this is so fucking ridiculous. Does increased vaginal size suggest wife is having sex with another? What? the actual fuck. First of all, he's a doctor. And even though he's not a physician, you would think at some point that he's had an anatomy class or two. By the way, I did Google this myself just to see what came up. There were a lot of different answers, and the majority of them were no. On April 15th, Bob told his lab assistant to order a bottle of potassium cyanide the, quote, best and purest, and to have it shipped to the lab overnight. It turned out to be a 250-gram bottle. On Wednesday, April 17th, it started out as a normal workday for Autumn. At 1.05 p.m., she texted Bob, and she said, quote, according to my calendar, I ovulate tomorrow. And Bob said, quote, perfect timing, creatine, a smiley face. It will make a huge difference. I am certain of it. Later, Autumn texted him again. Will it stimulate egg production too? Bob just replied with another smelly face. So in case you haven't figured out, Bob, for whatever reason, is trying to get her to take creatine. A lab worker testified that she saw Bob with a Ziploc bag of creatine, and he said he planned to give it to his wife. 
Remember, we discussed creatine infertility earlier. At 11.18 p.m., she texted him to let him know she was starting the 15-minute walk home, and he said, be safe. And this would be the last communication that anybody ever got from Dr. Autumn Klein. Next week, we will talk about Autumn's hospital stay and eventual death. I hope that's not a spoiler alert. I mean, I think that you figured out that she's going to die. Bob's trial and the aftermath. There's going to be a lot of science, and I'm going to try to narrow it down and put it in very plain language so that everybody can understand it. I don't want to make it a big dissertation about cyanide and its detection and all of that. We don't want to get bogged down with too many details, but we do want to talk about some because obviously it is a major deal in this case. Okay. Oh, if you want to be a teacher's pet, remember I have that new program through Buzzsprout. Just click on the link in the show notes. It says to be a teacher's pet. Click here. And also tell your friends about me and rate and review me. You can give me five-star review on Spotify. I'm also on TikTok now. I don't really know how to use it, but I am there. So yeah. Okay. I will see you in the next week. Class dismissed.